Welcome to the Hackberry House of Chosun. My name is Bob. Today I'm reading from my commentary on the book of Revelation, and we've gotten ourselves to chapter 17. Chapter 17, not the beginning of the chapter, we did that last time, but a little bit into the chapter, it starts talking about the beast from the sea. We met him before, and now a close-up, the beast from the sea. 17, verse 3, and verses 8 to 14. We saw earlier that chapters 13 and 17 might indeed be companion pieces, both telling of the two entities, beast and rider, that will in harmony do the will of Satan in the last hours of history. Certainly, if this is true, there is added significance to the fact that the woman sits on many waters, and the beast, correspondingly, rises out of the sea. And so, though chapter 17 is widely thought of as being about Babylon, equal space is actually given to Babylon's chief client, the beast. Likewise, the beast, Antichrist, shares chapter 13 with the false prophet, which is possibly Babylon's head, the Pope. Antichrist is first mentioned in 17.3 as being a scarlet beast. The woman herself is clothed with the same color. Only one other wore scarlet in the New Testament, and that was Jesus himself in his humiliation at the hands of Herod's men. Though he is and was a king and shall reign forever and ever, how unfitting it seemed for the Christ to be clothed in kingly garb before the time. How unfitting to see his followers today so bedecked. How clearly these excesses of dress and things material identify the professing church as of the beast. Next in 17.3 comes the indication of the names of blasphemy, tying him squarely to the beast of 13. Likewise, the reference to seven heads and ten horns takes us back to 13, and portions of Daniel for that matter. The description of the beast then continues in 17.8. We've explained earlier that this passage relates that a man who has already lived on the planet is even now awaiting to be released from the bottomless pit. Paul agrees in 2 Thessalonians 2. And John's record of an angel in charge of that pit adds light to the whole thing. He will come back to the earth to do his work, then be destroyed and be lost forever. In 17, 9 and 10, we are told that the seven heads on the beast have a double meaning. First, they stand for seven mountains or hills. The, the word in the Greek can mean either mountain or hill on which the woman sits. You tie this to 1718, and of course we've located the city of Rome. The woman whom you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Here is established that heads represent rule, the present rule being on this seven-hilled city. But the angel takes it a step forward. The seven also means seven kings, the angel says. I stated earlier the traditional way that commentaries connect this to world empires. And it is true that there cannot be a king without a kingdom. But the word is king, not kingdom. Perhaps it would be profitable to look closer at these 
empires of history and single out the king being considered by the spirit. It is obvious from even a short study of history that not every ruler of every empire was dead set against God and God's plan. It seems to me that there could easily be one man in the major kingdoms that rose up and fit the description of the man of sin for that generation. One man who from time to time pushed Satan's agenda until it became the world's agenda. He'd have to be a blasphemer. He'd have to be anti-God or anti-Christ. He would have to have a serious hatred for Jews and or Christians. He'd have to be a dictator with all authority over his people. And as we shall see, he'd have to be a king of Babylon. By John's day, by John's day, five such men had fallen, says the angel. In John's day, one ruled on the Roman throne, says the angel. One is yet to come in our own future. And then one more, verse 17, excuse me, chapter 17, verse 11. One more, that would make eight. Remember the what we talked about then? The man of sin is one of those seven who rules a second time, becoming number eight. He was in John's day. He is not on the earth in John's day, and yet he lives somewhere. He arises from the pit, which is a synonym in many scriptures for the grave, though the angel is restraining him for now, says Paul. He arises in his resurrection body like Jesus did. He fools the world, and then he goes to perdition. Now, we must certainly stop and look back into history to find these other men. I think it would help anyway. If I've discovered the truth about this matter, there are surely at least seven men from whom the Spirit can give us grace to choose the very one being exposed here as number eight. Did I say exposed? Oh, yes. Yes, we are to know this mystery. The facts are all out there. John marveled at it all, but, but he was mildly rebuked. He was told that the mystery is solvable. Verse 7. The book before us, as I said before, is not the book of unanswered mysteries. It's the book of Revelation. Those who seek these answers must surely find them. No matter who you are, uh, how much you know about other things, where you are in the world's strategy, in the world systems, um, you can know these things. Everybody should know them. I've got a glimmer, as you see. I know a few of these things, but I'm still working on it. Seven men. I can't begin my study in Egypt, though I understand the thinking of those who do. The mysteries of the enemy actually began at the Tower of Babel with a guy named Nimrod. I've seen him labeled the first Antichrist. That's right. In Genesis 10, we read of his greatness and how he actually founded the cities of Babylon and Nineveh, two capitals that would rule the world from his day until near the end of Old Testament history. Even Persia, which, which rounds out the secular history that serves as Old Testament background, even Persia has leg legends of one who hunted with dogs and leopards. His fame as a world leader has given rise to myth and fable in many cultures. Should not the founder of nations be considered the first of the men of sin? Josephus, the Jewish historian in his Antiquities, 
says about those early days. He says, The sons of Noah descended from the mountains into the plains and fixed their habitations there and persuaded others who were very loath to come down from the higher place to venture to follow their example. God commanded them to send colonies abroad for the thorough peopling of the earth, but they did not obey God since they had the suspicion that they were ordered to send out separate colonies that being divided asunder, they might the more easily be oppressed. Now it was Nimrod, this is, I'm still quoting Josephus, it was Nimrod who excited them to such affront and contempt of God. He also gradually changed the government into tyranny, bringing them into a constant dependence on his power. He also said he would be revenged on God if he should have a mind to drown the world again. Fawcett's Bible Dictionary tells more of this historic and legendary figure. You can read Alexander Hislop's Two Babylons also. Before moving on to man number two, let me point out here that since the first man in the chain is the founder of Babylon, and the last one supports Babylon intimately, according to Revelation, it's possible to search, I believe, for the successor of the king of Babylon only to find the man we're looking for. I discovered that there are 133 such men. They date from Babylon's early beginnings in the 2000s B.C. to and past the end of Babylon proper through Assyria, Persia, even Greece. Yes, Alexander the Great and his successors all called themselves king of Babylon. Moreover, Isaiah pinpoints a man with this title in his apocalyptic message recorded in chapter 14 of Isaiah. Here, one is called king of Babylon and he's somehow related to Lucifer. He is said to have weakened the nations His pride exalts him to exaggerated thoughts of his own deity, and yet he's brought to the pit. It sounds a lot like Revelation's accounting of the details, written 800 years before John here. Well, man number two, historically, the kingdom of Assyria, with Shalmaneser I at the helm, rose up and overpowered Babylonia about 1300 B.C. Now Nineveh rules. But Nineveh was also from Nimrod, and Assyria's men will call themselves king of Babylon also. It's in the blood. Babylon is the mother of all abominations and must give her name to them. Historical records assist us with this label through the Grecian Empire. John the Revelator adds Rome here to the list. One of Assyria's most powerful rulers was Sennacherib. His reign is mentioned briefly, but with great significance in God's word. Through his men, he actually challenged the God of Israel and the Israel of God in the 700s B.C. as he was snatching up real estate all around the promised land. In fact, he was successful in the overthrow of the northern kingdom, Israel. He felt he could lay claim to the south also. His pride and self-assurance turned him into a blasphemer, one of the prime requisites for Satan's men. His hatred for Israel, his plan to destroy them, also revealing his character and its source, was intercepted by God through the intercession 
of Judah's king Hezekiah and the prophetic utterances of none other than Isaiah himself. That's in Second Chronicles 32. Both Micah and Isaiah speak of one they call the Assyrian, a true enemy who will be defeated by the Lord. Like Isaiah's words about the king of Babylon, it seems almost like an end-time statement in both cases, leading some to believe that the man of sin will indeed be that ancient Assyrian. I can almost believe it myself, but of course only in the light of a resurrected king, as John predicts, not necessarily as a revival of the Assyrian nation, although I understand why people believe that too. For the record, though, Micah does not say that the one born in Bethlehem, I'm sorry, he does say, Micah says that the one born in Bethlehem, the Messiah, is going to be the one who will deliver Israel from the Assyrian. doesn't say Assyrians, but the Assyrian, singular. And Isaiah, in the same chapter that he speaks of the king of Babylon and Lucifer, later refers again to the singular Assyrian who will be broken, removing the yoke from Israel. Now, I've suggested earlier that it is Antiochus Epiphanes waiting in that pit of Revelation 17.8, and I think I have a good reason. But I can understand the reasoning that would lead people to think it is Sennacherib. One other item that points to this Assyrian, to my knowledge, he's the only one of the seven who was slain by the sword. Now, the wording of Revelation 13 does not, in my opinion, demand a sword wound to a human, as I explained. But I still find Sennacherib intriguing and worth more study. I refer interested persons to a helpful book. It's pretty old now. I think you can still find it. It's called The Assyrian Connection. The Assyrian Connection. Well, who then is third? of the five kings that have already fallen. Babylon returns to power in the early 600s B.C. And of the Neo-Babylonian kings, the greatest by far, the one we know about in the Bible, is Nebuchadnezzar. He is so great and so powerful and so creative and so against Israel at times that our modern ruler, well, he was modern when I wrote this, Saddam Hussein, was convinced that Nebuchadnezzar should be brought back to life in his, Saddam's, own person. And to this end, he rebuilt Babylon on a miniature scale and placed his own name on every brick. Well, Nebuchadnezzar's reign is well documented in biblical and extra-biblical sources. He is in Kings and Chronicles and Isaiah and Daniel. He besieged Jerusalem and took King Jehoiachin prisoner as now backslidden Judah is not even to be protected from the invader. Their sin is just too heavy a burden around their neck, and they must go down. He carries away first much of Jewish treasure and people, leaving only the poor. He builds a siege wall around Jerusalem, kills King Zedekiah's sons, even blinding Zedekiah in the process. He burns the temple captures the rest of the people, actually places in the temple of Marduk at Babylon the treasures from the temple of God. By the way, Marduk is a mythical descendant of Nimrod. You can even see three letters of Nimrod's name in Marduk, M-A-R-D-U-K. 
Yeah, you see the R and the D? I'd see it. Do you see the M? Yeah, M, R, D. Nimrod is in Marduk. Well, now it should be seen that as Jeremiah recounts in chapters 21, 22, and 27 of his prophecy, Nebuchadnezzar is a servant of the Lord. That is, God is using him, even though unwittingly and for his own reasons. He is God's whipping boy for his people. But as Pharaoh was raised up for the purposes of God and later drowned in the Red Sea, so judgment will fall on Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon for their treatment of Israel. Daniel recounts incidents in Nebuchadnezzar's life subsequent to the fall of Jerusalem. His insights into the varying degrees of that monarch's devotion to Yahweh are helpful in our understanding of his heart. Nebuchadnezzar seemed to be pleased with Daniel and his Jewish companions, as he had been with Jeremiah before them. And yet, he continued on in his idolatry, especially his unbearable pride. The image of gold, it's in Daniel 3, which, by the way, previews the image of the beast in Revelation 13, was erected to remind citizens of the greatness of the king. This statue became the reason for the punishment of the three young Hebrew friends of Daniel. And yet God breaks through into Nebuchadnezzar's life by saving them from the fiery furnace. Earlier, Daniel's revelation of the meaning of a troubling dream had likewise awakened him to the greatness of the God of Israel. His respect grows from including the true God with his own gods, to honoring that God as supreme, but never, that we know of, to worshiping Yahweh alone. Later in the story, Daniel 4, we see Nebuchadnezzar thinking back on his glory with satisfaction and pride, and at this point he is humbled before the empire, but is later restored. Altogether then, a proud, Sometimes blasphemous, idolatrous, anti-Semitic king of Babylon was this Nebuchadnezzar. For that reason, we would include him in the list of Antichrist. Now, in all fairness, I must add that one uh, who is very popular among us today, Mr. MacArthur, is convinced that he will meet Nebuchadnezzar in heaven. Now, that may be taking the doctrines of grace to the extreme, but who knows? Who knows? Well, Babylonia falls again and is replaced by Persia, whose Cyrus the Great conquered Babylon in 536 B.C. Here it becomes very difficult to find a man who fills the bill as man of sin of the hour. Yet, uh, judging from the description of the Revelation 13 beasts in terms of animals, there's no doubt that the bear, or Persia, must be included in the history of the man of sin. Now, the Persian emperors, it seems, even though they were despotic and often cruel, definitely worshipped the wrong god, they were by and large friendly to Israel, or so it seems, not always. Cyrus, who inherited the captive Jews, immediately released them. Succeeding rulers tried to support the growing state of Israel against foreign elements of that day who did not want her to prosper. And were the Persian kings also king of Babylon? Yes, until the coming of Xerxes. Several emperors later, this was the honorary title they claimed. What about Xerxes? He is a legitimate king of Babylon. It is said he illegitimized several generations of coming rulers 
by storming the Babylonian temple of Marduk, also known as Nimrod. The idea is that it is Nimrod who gives authority to the king. No Nimrod, no king. Well, knowing that that was the feeling, even in Persia, lets us believe that we're on the right track in looking only at these Babylonian kings as candidates for the man of sin. Alexander the Great, it is said, restored Marduk to his place, and for many generations the Greek rulers wore the title again. And so, for example, the Bible's Artaxerxes is not a king of Babylon, whereas Ahasuerus, that is Xerxes in the book of Esther, and Cyrus are for the above reason. Could either of them be the Antichrist of the Persian Empire? You say that's not important if he's not the one. Well, that's true. Consider the book of Esther and the wicked plot of Haman, the highest-ranking official in the court of Xerxes, if indeed Ahasuerus and Xerxes are the same person as many believe. Though the Persian ruler was not possessed of hatred for the Jews, he did submit to Haman's Hitler-like plot that all Jews be destroyed. We call that genocide today. And through the intervention of Esther, the wickedness of Haman and Xerxes was superseded by a plan for Jewish self-defense. But it would seem that any ruler who, as king of Babylon, decreed the extinction of God's people, whatever his ignorance or motivation, would qualify as a candidate for the beast. Next, the great Alexander storms through the Persian Empire in the name of Macedonia and Greece. The Greek Empire follows Alexander the Great, the king of Babylon, in name. Yet he favors and spares Israel in his conquests. When he dies, his kingdom is divided four ways, as prophesied by Daniel. Out of one of these splits, listen carefully, comes the little horn. Bible scholars who are convinced the Bible is not totally true will tell us that that horn was Antiochus Epiphanes, ruler of the largest portion of the Greek domain. Bible believers, however, point out that, no, this cannot be Epiphanes, for the passages about what happens are always couched in an end-time setting. Perhaps it's time for these two positions to merge and declare that it's possible for one man to live in two eras. Of course, he would have to be resurrected to do that. As you know now, this is what I believe happens. Consider the wickedness of Antiochus and see if he qualifies as an antichrist. He was treacherous and deceitful. He wore that title, King of Babylon. He was driven out of Egypt by the Romans, and in fury he unleashed evil on Jerusalem. He broke a treaty with that city in order to plunder the temple for its wealth. He forbade Jewish sacrifices, according to Josephus, for three and one-half years. Hmm. He slaughtered many Jews. He burned buildings, knocked down city walls. He built an idol altar on God's altar and sacrificed pigs on it. This is the Old Testament version of the abomination of desolation. But Jesus... In his day, hundreds of years later, said that the abomination of desolation that Daniel talked about, he says, was still future. He referred people to the book of Daniel, but it had already happened, you say. No, 
it may have happened already, and we have a model of it, we have a preview of it, but it's going to happen again. You see the confusion regarding this man, Antiochus? Is he the once and future king? Antiochus compelled Jews to forsake their worship, making them build temples to his gods. He allowed no circumcision. Many yielded to these pressures. Those who did not were whipped or torn to pieces or crucified or strangled. The book of law was destroyed. He was a proud man, obsessed with his own worth and deity. On coins you will see his name as Theos Epiphanes, God manifest, the very description of the Son of God, 1 Timothy 3.16. We mentioned above also the strange case of Daniel 11. No one questions that 11 verses 21 to 35 has to do with the wicked first reign of Epiphanes. But verses 36 to 45, with hardly a clue, were suddenly in the end times, on into chapter 12, where history is climaxed. From 1136 to the end is the Antichrist. Everybody says that. But if you blink, you'll think for sure it was Antiochus we were talking about, though none of these things ever happened in his life. Can you see that perhaps the Spirit is saying right here, in plain sight, that this latter-day figure is also Antiochus, raised from the dead? So we've got Nimrod, Sennacherib, Nebuchadnezzar, Xerxes, Epiphanes. These five have fallen. And one is. Now, since we live in the same... Let me stop just a minute. A thought keeps coming to my mind that I've got to share with you. And that is when I was talking about the seven heads before. I told you that in Daniel, even though it's the same imagery as in the book of Revelation, this, this beast with seven heads, those seven heads uh, are on four animals only. Seven heads, but only on four animals because Greece, represented by the, by the leopard, has four heads. And those four heads, we know, are the successors of Alexander the Great. So one of them, for sure, would have to be in this lineup that I'm giving of the, the men of the past. And, and I think it's... I have to say that because uh, Epiphanes was never the head of the entire Grecian Empire. There was no Grecian Empire. It was all divided up. That was the point. But the leopard doesn't have just one head. Greece has four heads so that you can get a total of seven heads and equaling the seven heads that are mentioned in John's Revelation. Well, these five, Nimrod, Sennacherib, Nebuchadnezzar, Xerxes, and Epiphanes, they've fallen. In John's day, they're gone. One of those heads is... Now, since we live in the same Roman era in which John lived, there is a sense in which that one still is. Uh, the empire that ruled in John's day has never been replaced, just greatly diminished. If we were to use Daniel's statue vision as an outline of history, it would begin with Nebuchadnezzar's Neo-Babylonia, according to the interpretation, continue to Medo-Persia, then Greece, and finally Rome, 
the two legs of which, this is still the vision of the statue, would, would attach to the feet kingdom of the last days. We still live in the leg days of Rome. You've even got an Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholic, two, two, uh, two legs of that same false spirit that overtook the early church. When the Spirit opens the eyes to this revelation, my, but does one's worldview change? One is. Up until now, there are men who represent these various ages and empires through whom Satan revealed seven heads. If they are indeed the same as Daniel 7, they, they must be bear, lion, and leopard, not to mention that ten-horned beast. Put together all the kingdoms of men and Satan's power, and you have this man of sin. The man chosen to represent the Roman days is the emperor who placed John on Patmos, Domitian. Because of the movies and other knowledge of these days, we tend to look at Nero as the typical Antichrist figure coming out of Rome. Nero was a madman and an Antichrist of sorts for sure. But consider this Domitian. To the embarrassment of his peers, he was the first of the Roman emperors to suggest and then demand his own self-deification while he yet lived. Prior to Domitian, the emperors had the courtesy to advise their people, just wait till I'm dead before calling me a god. But not him. And by virtue of the fact that John the Revelator has equated Rome with Babylon in this very 17th chapter, we must see Domitian as a king of Babylon also, although the phrase was not used by men after the Greeks. His hatred of Jews likewise qualifies him. It was so strong that Christianity was persecuted severely because it was simply considered a Jewish cult and he hated Judaism. Domitian levied a tax tax among the Israelites to equal the amount that they normally would have given to their temple. He destroyed some, that temple was destroyed some 25 years before by the Roman general, Titus. He demanded further that Christians and Jews alike recognize the emperor as God or pay the price. Those who refused either were killed or banished. Even the emperor's own cousin, Flavius Clemens, was killed, charged with atheism for embracing the one true God. Five have fallen in John's day. I gave you their names. Domitian is. One is still to come. He will be, now listen carefully again, he will be number seven. He will be number seven. It's here that we're struck with a little recognized revelation in the book. The next world leader will be neither the Christ from heaven or the Antichrist. Number seven is distinct from number eight. Seven rules a short time. Granted, the Antichrist, eight rules a short time, but I wish to emphasize that these two men are as distinct from each other as the number seven is from the number eight. Now, some have theorized that number seven would be assassinated and number eight would be the resurrected number seven. I get that, but I've just shown you why I don't think it's true. We've established that number eight is the man of sin. He's the one 
who is going to perdition after he rises from the pit. He is further, as I say, a resurrected form of one of the first seven. These facts are indisputable. Many who have come this far in their understanding have jumped to the conclusion, as I just said, that number eight is simply a resurrected number seven. I believe it won't work. Let's do the facts of 17.8 again. The beast was. He's already history in John's day. Eight cannot therefore be number seven or number six. He must be somewhere in numbers one to five. I've given evidence above that points to five or perhaps to number two. In this regard, remember Paul's testimony also in an already quoted passage. Paul says that even in his day, Someone was restraining the man of sin. When that restrainer is taken out of the way, the lawless one will be revealed. So who then is number seven? He must be a king of Babylon, a world conqueror, whether by politics or force. He must be anti-Jewish. He must be anti-Christian, very powerful, Perhaps the opening four seals of chapter 6 define this man and the trouble he starts. Those four seals do seem to be disconnected, as I said, from the other three. It's quite possible that their time span is the first three and one-half years of Daniel's 70th week. I've been back and forth on that, I know. You study it yourself and see what you come up with. That would be a short time equal to the short time of Antichrist. Three and a half years each. Here would be the time for Israel to be given all at once politically, in exchange for all the world once from it. The masterpiece of all political deals following a time of world strife. Yet somehow he brings a measure of peace to the Middle East as Europe rises to power, gradually swallowing up all vulnerable nations in its path, Hitler-like. It seems that America by this time will be second-rate or worse, as I mentioned before. The idea of making America great again will long have passed, it seems to me. And instead, America will be striving to survive like all the other nations that forget God. This number seven is the man who could also fill Daniel's description of the prince who is to come in Daniel 9.26. He seems to have conquered the city of Jerusalem, then brought it to terms, confirming a peace treaty of seven years with Israel. But in the middle of this week, or seven years, he's forced to cut the relationship, take away Jewish sacrifices, and another man is introduced on the wing of abomination, shall be one, not the prince, who makes desolate. Now there are other clues in Daniel. Chapter 8 tells us that the little horn is given an army to oppose the prince of the host and the sacrifices. Could it be that number seven is here being threatened by number eight? The prince, it seems, confirms the treaty, but the little horn brings it down. Could it be that Antichrist's appearance will first be in the temple itself? Paul says he will be there, claiming to be God. That would certainly put an end to Jewish sacrifices. I believe this could be what Jesus means when he says that there will be yet another abomination of desolation in the last days. He says it is the one spoken of by the prophet Daniel. It's an abomination so great that neither the former Antiochus, who sacrificed pigs, 
on the temple altar or the Roman Titus who raised up idols there could fulfill it. The final abomination would be a man himself claiming to be the Lord God. Another word about number seven. If Babylon is Rome and the Pope is the head of Babylon, is it possible that the seventh king is that last Pope, a political mastermind who aggressively spreads religion by the sword as Rome has done in connection with other great religions, though, such as Islam? Rather than killing him, will the Antichrist, number eight, ask him merely to join his team? Will number seven, in fact, become the false prophet? We read of no murder. There are two men who rule the world at the end, beast and false prophet. Could they be number seven and number eight together? I speculate only. Let's look at number eight, verse 11. He's a composite of all the evil men who have blasphemed God, grabbed authority, ruled from Babylon, and hated God's people. He will have direct infusion of satanic power, claim to be God, sit in God's temple. He rises from the dead, reigns three and one half years with incredible worldwide power, and is then slain by Christ himself and dumped in the lake of fire. And now the ten kings in verse 12. Now, the ten kings have been with us since Daniel's prophecy, too. Sometimes they are ten toes, sometimes ten horns, but always they are the final world government. Most have theorized them to be a revived Roman Empire with ten nations. In light of the fact that the beast rises from the sea, the Mediterranean Sea, we might be able to look for a Mediterranean alliance composed of European and Islamic nations, or worse, a Europe that is Muslim totally by then, as it seems to be on its way to being now. The mystery of the Ten Kings continues to intrigue us. I was investigating this phenomenon back in the 90s, and I wrote about my findings in in part five of The Scarlet Threads. Let me quote from my own book. Many have been the speculations of modern-day biblical prophecy students regarding the coming United States of Europe, a power already being felt in the economic world. There is no doubt that an amalgamation of European powers will far eclipse the United States, will change the entire balance of world power, and in the process begin the fulfillment of the ten-toe imagery of the prophet Daniel. The ten toes of the image Daniel saw flow from the two legs on that same statue, which we've been identifying as the two divisions of the Roman Empire. Belgium, the Netherlands, Luxembourg, all Rome-dominated countries, lead the way in 1957 by joining their customs union, they called it Benelux, to giants Italy, France, and Germany, also countries with Roman Catholic majorities, in what becomes known as the European Economic Community. It was the EEC. The treaty, which makes all of this official, is signed where? (laughs) Where do you think? In Rome. Now, I'm quoting from the New York Times, March 25, 1957. Two treaties destined to change the course of history will be signed in Rome tomorrow afternoon. The article indicates that one of the treaties will create a pool of the six countries for the development and exploitation of nuclear energy, principally 
it says, for peaceful uses. Well, there's great pomp and ceremony. Schools are canceled. Flags are flown on all public buildings. It's quite a big event, but only the beginning. Catholic Spain, Portugal, Austria, and Ireland follow suit. Non-Catholic nations join, but their place in the community continues to be a little unstable. To use scriptural terms, it would seem that the beast is rising out of the sea before our very eyes. I speak, of course, of the Mediterranean Sea, where he has tried to rise several times before. But recently, the Loch Ness Monster has been given more attention than this threat to the entire world's security. Nevertheless, the beast shall rise, and on its back will be the same woman that has kept her grip from the days of the Caesars. Now that's all from Scarlet Threads. What seemed to be the clear fulfillment of Daniel eh, also seemed to fizzle out later as 10, we were looking for 10, you know, became 20 and 30. And the excitement has cooled a lot. But that part of the world still needs our attention. Now, quite some time later, I ran across this interesting piece of information, which I also published in a book titled The Seventy Sevens of Gabriel. Um, It's called The New Mediterranean Union, Seeds of a New Roman Empire? Question mark. Posted on October 9, 2008 by Tom Robinson. Quoting, a media circus was in full swing as U.S. Democratic presidential candidate Barack Obama was greeted in the Middle East and Europe as a political superstar in late July 2008. But a potentially far more important development in that part of the world the week before garnered little attention. On July 13, leaders of 43 countries surrounding the Mediterranean from Europe North Africa and the Middle East, joined together in Paris, France to launch a new regional union, the Mediterranean Union, or as it's now officially called, the Union for the Mediterranean. Another article that's going to help you understand what's happening around the Mediterranean was written in 2018. It begins like this. Welcome to Club Med. Not since the days of the Roman Empire have all the lands touching the Mediterranean fallen under the aegis of a single government or organization. There's the United Nations, of course, but July 2008 saw the establishment on the initiative of French President Nicolas Sarkozy of the Euro-Mediterranean Partnership linking the European Union, EU, to every Mediterranean nation except, at least for now, Libya. So, China is not the coming world power. Not Russia either. Not Islam. I suggest we follow this story of the Mediterranean as the future headlines of the planet. I totally suggest that we keep our eyes on the Mediterranean if we're looking for clues about our future. Now, the Revelation narrative moves ahead of the present considerations to that tragic decision of Antichrist, fed by demon spirits who collect men from all over the world to oppose Jesus upon his descent from heaven. Notice here John's persistent usage of the term lamb when speaking of Jesus. 
Here he also mentions the church that is with him. For by this point in the story, namely the war against Jesus, all the people of God from all time will be with him in the air. What a formidable army. The Lord of Lords with his redeemed and empowered saints and the angels. Oh, as the song says, how I want to be in that number. The angel returns to a description of the harlot and her relationship to the beast. The woman is, for a long time, spiritual head of the planet, all its tongues and divisions. But at the end, as Antichrist desires all men to worship him alone, all other religions are destroyed and reprogrammed for a more direct channel to himself. Next we see all of the empire, totally under the grasp of Satan and his man, turning on Babylon, the former glory of the nations, and burning her. All of the next chapter is a description of this tragedy. It is God filling the hearts of these evil men so that they desire to do his will. Pharaoh experienced such a change of heart. Now we go to a study of the fall and funeral of the great city, followed immediately by the return of Jesus. Again, thanks for being here. And uh, you might want to go to Amazon.com and purchase this whole book. I don't know. Whatever. Will you please tell others about this recording, this, uh, this message that we're trying to get to the people of God as we move into times that look more and more like the times predicted in this book. This is the Hackberry House of Chosun. Lord willing, we'll talk again real soon. Bye-bye.